For as long as people have been driving cars, they've also been crashing them. And although we now have record low levels of deaths on our roads, road traffic collisions are still a common presentation to ambulance crews. Reading the scene is something that is often taught in ambulance service training, but how much can we actually gain from looking at the damage to vehicles? Is this precision guesswork, or is there a science behind predicting injury in our patients? This week, we speak to an expert to find out. Ambulance General Broadcast, any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. Hello everyone, welcome to General Broadcast. My name's Alex, I am a registered paramedic and a practice educator. And my name's Josh, I'm a trainee specialist paramedic in critical care. And this week we've got a really interesting two-part podcast. Yeah, we thought that um, since this is going to be quite a long one, what we thought we'd do is we'd split it into two parts. So this is essentially two months worth. We're going to release them more or less at the same time. But it should be quite an interesting one, I think, Josh. You've had a sit down with uh, a chap called Adam Barrow, who is the head of collision research for the Transport Research Laboratory. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, so what have um, what have you been discussing with Adam? So Adam was really good to sit down with us and speak to us uh, around collision and injury mechanics, as well as the modern safety features of vehicles and their impact on what he's termed the injury experience. And that's a term that we're going to keep coming back and revisiting during this podcast, because I think it's a really important terminology. Yeah, I think so. We, we'll, um, I think we'll talk more about our thoughts on on everything at the end um so we'll we'll get to the interview shortly but i just think it's it's worth having a little discussion um since it doesn't come up in the interview on why we think this is important because this is something we've wanted to discuss for a little while isn't it we've we've had a few discussions online about injury mechanics and and kinematics or you know whatever whatever you want to call it and i think it's important because it's it's an area where there's definitely historically at least a a degree of confusion about what is applicable from real world and and the kind of purely theoretical physics and um i remember just you and i certainly had lectures together uh, and we sort of came away thinking how much of this is necessarily applicable to uh, to real world practice so i think the one of the main things to take away is not that we're expecting people as a result of this podcast to suddenly becoming collision investigators because the, the type of things that Adam is uh, really talking about obviously take a, a a degree of specialty and a lot of training to be able to walk up to an accident scene and, and uh, you know, come at it with that level of uh, mm. analytical kind of process. But it's a few pointers and a few things that you can think about because you, you know what it's like when you go up to the scene of an accident. There's always that time where you you feel almost obliged to have a look at the vehicle and um i don't know about you josh but i i tend to find myself sort of standing looking at the vehicle and going yep that's that's got some dents in it and yeah um, Yeah, it's it's definitely a contentious issue isn't it and there's lots of thought processes on on either side and i think obviously adam's got a, a wealth of experience in this area but what he has given us I think is is an understanding and some questions to ask ourselves and more of a format in which to look at that crushed vehicle to get some useful and relevant information. Yeah, we all like a uh, we all like a structured approach. So hopefully, uh, 
what um, what you guys discuss uh, in the in the next segment is going to be really useful. So um, shall we shall we get into it from here? Yeah, let's do it. So, uh, Adam, thanks very much for joining us. I um, I really appreciate you giving your time up this evening to uh, to, to speak to us. Yeah, um, I, I guess a, a really good place to start is um, I'll I'll hand over to you in a second to to introduce yourself and and tell us a little bit about your your experience and how you got into doing what you're doing. But um, the the reason that I think this is such an important topic to to talk about and the reason that I've been so keen um, to to speak to you on the podcast is this whole subject of of reading the scene and and looking at at car crashes and looking at the the, the damage that's involved um, is has been quite a I think I suppose controversial subject recently and even when I was putting questions out to uh, to our forum asking for people's ideas there was a lot of back and forth about how much information can we garner from the damage that's available on scene and and with modern cars and modern safety situations is there a you know is there a science to kinematics or or uh, or, or reading the scene quite how many of us were taught in, in paramedic school um so i thought it would be really important and really powerful to speak to somebody who who is looking at the research and is looking at these scenes uh and 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 see what information there is on the scene available um, and, and what deductions we can make from what we're seeing in front of us. So, uh, so hopefully that will we will lay down some uh, information and and get some words of wisdom f- with regards to this subject. Yeah, hopefully. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so Adam, I'll, I'll pass over to you. Do you just want to introduce yourself and and tell us a little bit about the work that you're involved with? Sure. So, uh, firstly, thank you very much for reaching out and inviting me. It's a great pleasure to uh, yeah to try and en- engage with um, the paramedics and and pre-hospital care and. Um, so yeah, my name is Adam Barrow. I'm the head of collision research at the UK's Transport Research Laboratory. So for I imagine most of your listeners probably haven't heard of TRL or the Transport Research Laboratory. So very quickly, TRL has been around for a really long time. So it was founded in 1933. So it was essentially the, lo- the laboratory for um, what was then the Ministry of Transport. And it's been kind of at the centre of how the UK has developed its its road infrastructure, its road network, um, and been really at the core of kind of developing road safety issues, regulation, policy, technology development. So it is, it is no longer part of the Ministry or the Department for Transport. It's, a, it's now a private organisation. But we um, kind of maintain quite a, a nice position in, in the industry that we are completely independent. Um, so we have no shareholders. We have no kind of... Um, stakeholders who influence our kind of research, we're, we're able to take a very objective, independent view on on the research that we do and the advice and recommendations that we can make. Which, depending on what kind of recommendations or what the data is saying, either makes us very popular or very unpopular, depending on on who we're speaking to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, to TRL is quite a diverse place to work. So we've got experts in in pretty much every kind of facet of, of road transportation. So we don't really work with aviation or maritime or rail that much. It's, it's primarily on the road. Everything from, from kind of infrastructure development, um, infrastructure surveying, how do we design newer smart motorways, you know, road systems that work, road signs that are clear to read, um, 
down to kind of human behavior, human factors research, what kind of behavioral campaigns can you put out to engage road users to either change their behavior or raise awareness in certain ways. Um, and also on vehicle technology side, obviously safety is a real core part of what we do on the vehicle side, but kind of throughout what TRL does. Um, and that's where my, my role kind of comes into this is I'm um, in charge of the, um, the in-depth collision research that we do at TRL. So we do a lot of statistical work looking at accident statistics, um, but the focus of my team is really on getting on scene, upfront, kind of boots on the ground investigations, understanding what's going on in the real world, um, collecting information, codifying it into analyzable data sets, and then performing research um, for, for kind of any, any number of applications. It can be for all those things that we talked about, how do you design a safer road, and what kind of standards should you be setting for things like roadside barriers, as well as things like um, think campaigns, which, which some of your listeners may be um, familiar with. And also a big part of it is, of course, um, informing how vehicles should be designed, the regulations that we test those vehicles to make sure that they're performing in terms of safety. So, yeah, so that's uh, kind of what, what my team does. And, and one of the main projects that we head up is um, the UK's in-depth collision research program known as the RAIDS program. And a core part of that is we have a response team. Um, so we send our team out to live collisions um, at the time of the collision. So all the vehicles, all the casualties still in situ, usually hopefully as close to um, or as close behind the emergency services turning up as possible. Um, so we get really the, the kind of the, the best idea and the, the best um, access to evidence of exactly what's happened, how it's happened. And then we can start to infer the reasons why um, and use that to, to kind of inform how regulation policy and technology should develop. So that's that's a really uh, interesting sort of uh, concept and not one I'd, I'd heard about. I, um, I heard you speaking about the RAIDS program at, at Trauma Care. Uh, which is which is sort of how uh, how we got in contact. Um, would you would you be able to tell us a little bit about the the you know from the point of view hearing the call um, to to the point of view arriving on scene, just to give a, a bit of an idea about um, about how you're activated and and it really is sort of in the early stages that this research is starting, isn't it? The early stages of, of the of the crash or the collision. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the RAIDS team currently operates in the Thames Valley and Hampshire uh, regions. So um, in previous iterations of the RAIDS program, we've also had a sister team up in Nottinghamshire and Leicestershire. And actually kind of looking back over the decades, the UK has invested in in-depth collision research for a really long time. So we've kind of been collecting this information in detail since around the early 80s. Um, but at the moment, we operate in Thames Valley and Hampshire. Um, so we work really closely with um, the ambulance services and also um, the uh, local police forces. So we have really two ways of being notified of collisions and through through both of those means. Um, so we are we have a what we call the ambulance pager phone. Um, so we're notified um, of all uh, RTCs in the area um, via an ambulance phone from from your um, kind of command and control centres. I'm not quite sure what what they're called in the ambulance world. But that's certainly what they're called in in the police world. Um, and the other the other side is we have a um, a seconded police officer from Thames Valley or Hampshire um, Joint Operations Unit as part of our team permanently. Um, we also have our own uh, radio call signs, so we we sign on 
to the police systems very much like a, a normal kind of uh, roads policing unit would, although we don't respond in any capacity as an emergency response vehicle. Um, so what's interesting is actually usually we get notified via the ambulance phone, usually around five to 10 minutes before anything shows up on the police systems, which is quite interesting. So oftentimes we'll be based you know, for a particular shift at a police station we'll get a bleep on the ambulance phone and we'll actually set off before the police set off and um, to attend to the same collision. Um, so we, okay. yeah, so we, we get kind of um, cursory information about what the situation is, where it is. Um, and then usually um, because we have access to the um, uh, police radio network, we start to get the information dripping in um, as we attend to the collision. And and so it sounds like you you're arriving on scene pretty pretty quickly and and sometimes you know very early on um, you said that that sometimes patients are still on scene or the ambulance crews are still managing patients on scene is is that at that point is that forming part of the research you, are you you know are you observing things there or are you looking purely at the uh, the, the damage and and the crash scene so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we try to respond as quickly as possible. Sadly, we don't have blue lights, so we have to travel there you know, as, as a normal member of the public would. We do have an exemption to use things like hard shoulders, but we can't really push traffic out of the way using blue lights or anything like that. Um, so it can really vary. It really depends. Sometimes, I mean, I've, I've been first on scene to a fatal collision and literally been the, the first car that turned up. And it can happen the complete opposite as well, where actually a scene's there for several hours if it's a fatal or a very serious collision and the scene remains open. We've turned up a, a few hours afterwards. Um, so it can really vary. In terms of the, the evidence that we're looking for, there's, we, we kind of view it as um, what we describe as perishable evidence. So there's aspects of a collision that do start to degrade over time. So it's, it's is why the, the a real added benefit of getting there on scene is things like, you know, there's certain things that decrade over, over quite a long period of time, things like marks on the road, scratches, things like that can, can degrade over time. But it's also just understanding what the light conditions were like, what was the traffic like, what were the, you know, the, the pedestrians on the side of the road, did those have any influence on, on the causality of the collision? So when we arrive at the scene, it's not just about understanding the collision as in, you know, the, the, the bang and the, the moment that the metal is bending. It's also about understanding what were the causation factors that led up to this. Um, so what we train our investigators to do is when you arrive on scene is don't actually go anywhere near the vehicles. Don't go where the, to where the point of impact was, because although that's the kind of the interesting bit in terms of when the injuries happen, it's really important to understand that the collision actually started happening seconds, sometimes minutes before that. And so taking that kind of you know, uh, top-down view of, or, you know, 30,000-foot view and trying to look at all of the factors that led up to it, not just looking at the collision locus itself, because sometimes it can be a tyre scuff that's a kilometre further up the road that kind of is the first piece of the jigsaw to understanding what's happened. Adam, when you when you arrive on scene, what sort of things do you look at with regards to the vehicles and, and what sort of clues and cues are you getting from the scene with regards to potential um with regards to potential injuries or the severity of the crash is is it possible to look at the scene and go i think this is possibly going to be a, a fatal or a, a very unwell patient or this is someone something that somebody has walked away from because uh again there's sort of two sides of the fence and two debates that, that we we 
here in the paramedic world that on one side of it is is that you know you read your up and overs and down and under sort of kinematics crash uh, profiles and then the other side is well actually you you can't tell because the cars are designed to crush and they're designed to crumple yeah absolutely it's a great question um okay so there's definitely a huge amount that you can uh, kind of infer from just a, a, a kind of a, a quick assessment of how the vehicles have, have behaved in the crash. So just focusing on that, what we call the crashworthiness of the vehicles, really the, what we also call secondary safety. So as opposed to primary safety, which is safety that looks at preventing the collision from happening, secondary safety is about understanding what's going on during that kind of 100 milliseconds or so in which the energy exchange during a collision is taking place. Um, and also opposed to tertiary safety, which is where you guys come in. So that's all the safety stuff that goes on following a collision, um, which also includes the, you know, the post, uh, post-collision post response and that kind of thing. So I guess when we're looking at um, a couple of vehicles, our investigators will, will you know, the most experienced of them can probably look at, at, a, at a particular car um, and make a pretty good snap judgment as to what kind of injury experience the occupants of that vehicle have experienced. Um, so it's probably worth going back a, a few decades and thinking about how vehicles have developed over, over the past kind of 50, 60 years. So back then we had you know a, a boom in the number of automobiles on the road and a real road safety problem. It's huge numbers of fatalities and collisions happening. It's easy to see there that the, the injury mechanisms are really around the strength of the vehicles involved. And this idea of intrusion into the passenger or the occupant cell. Um, so top of the list really is to look for any intrusion. So when you get intrusion, by which I mean the, the chassis of the vehicle is crushing into the space inside that kind of passenger cell where the, where the passengers are sat, that's, that's, a real, that's a really big problem. Because as soon as you start contacting the occupants during that crash, you get transmission of huge forces and you end up with really really horrific injuries we can end up with really horrific injuries so one of the first things is to look at the stability of the the passenger cell and you know a quick a quick kind of glance at it will show you you'll be able to see where whether or not the the whole chassis has started to compromise so you're looking for crushing of the a pillars crushing of bulkheads if it's a side impact how much the door has intruded that kind of thing so that's kind of top of the list so at the at the very kind of core of occupant safety in vehicles we need a survival space inside the occupants in order for the the next systems i'm going to talk about to work Um, so so that's all well and good so having having a strong vehicle that doesn't crash uh, doesn't crush and intrude during a collision is really important but that doesn't solve the whole problem because we could make a vehicle that is hugely hugely strong but this is where we start to think about the physics a little bit so the things that cause injuries are forces and forces are proportional to the accelerations involved and accelerations are the changes in velocity that happen over a period of time. Um, so you can, you can reduce the acceleration for a specific change in velocity, say from 70 miles an hour to zero by increasing the amount of time that it takes and a, you know, a quick thought experiment. We've all had a 70 mile an hour to zero deceleration we've all experienced that you know when you're coming off of a motorway or something like that and you gently break from 70 down to zero if you think about the forces being exerted in your body they're pretty pretty small compared with heavy braking for example if you're slamming your brakes on from 70 miles an hour and coming down to to a stop you can all you can always feel the the forces being exerted through the seat or through the seat belt or the, or the steering wheel on your hands 
So it's that same principle. We're having the same change in velocity, what we call delta V, but over a much shorter period of time, which leads to higher accelerations, higher forces. If you take that same principle into a collision, we're having a 70 to zero, but now rather than over 10 or 15 seconds, you're having it over a fraction of a second. That's that's when you start to get huge accelerations and really big forces, and that's what ends up causing the injuries. So us having a, a really strong car is only part of the problem because then what would happen during a collision is that your car would come to a stop very, very, very quickly. So this is where the concept of crumple zones comes in. So crumple zone is, is a bit of a colloquialism, but it's probably um, a word or a phrase that, that most people are familiar with. And the whole idea of crumple zones is to extend or increase that time over which the change in velocity is taking place. So we can kind of think of them almost like springs. So the next thing that we'll look at after looking for any intrusion is to look at how the crumple zone has performed. So this is where things get a little bit more technical now. So it's important to understand that the crumple zone is not just the whole front of a vehicle. Crumple zone are specific structures designed into a vehicle. A really easy way of visualizing or seeing what those are is if you go onto Google and you just type in monocoque chassis, you'll get lots of images up of, of what a monocoque chassis is. And you, you'll be able to see it's the framework of, a, of an occupant cell, probably with spaces for the doors. And then out the front of the vehicle, you'll see most likely two kind of large chassis members or big kind of what look like girders. Those are things that we call longitudinals. Those are the most important structures in a frontal collision. Those girders are specifically tuned to behave in a certain way during a crash. And that's where all of that energy absorption takes place. So the whole principle behind it is that you have a really strong occupant cell with these essentially springs sticking out of the front of the vehicle. And so as we have the crash, those springs compress, absorb the energy, reducing the the change in velocity, but over a much longer period of time than if you didn't have them and you just had the occupant cell hitting into something really strong. That increases the time over which the change in velocity is taking place, therefore reducing the accelerations and reducing the forces happening to that vehicle. But of course, those systems, those longitudinals, those kind of chassis members at the front of of the vehicle, they're designed and developed and they're tested under laboratory conditions. So this is where crash testing, you know, most people probably have seen a crash test in their time. That's so that we can regulate and understand how how vehicles are performing across the world and also between different manufacturers and things. So it's important to have a repeatable test. But of course, that doesn't always translate well into the real world. We're not always hitting the same kind of barrier at the same kind of speeds in a laboratory. We're out in the real world impacting different kinds of things. So the next thing is to look at how those members have been engaged. So what we're looking for is good engagement of those structures. So by that, I mean looking for how those structures have crushed back because we want them to crush back because that's where we know that the energy absorption has taken place. So sometimes in certain collision configurations, it's possible to see those, those chassis members haven't been engaged very well. A good example of that would be something like an underrun collision. So sometimes you see this with um, passenger cars impacting the rear of trucks or sometimes vans or sometimes even in rear end collisions when everybody's braking and the nose is pitched down and the, the tails of the vehicles pitch up. 
you get an underrun effect where those chassis members are going underneath the car. So we'll still see lots of crush to the top of the vehicle or to the top of the bonnet, which doesn't really absorb that much energy. So we're not really getting that much of that benefit from having those big springs at the front. So that kind of leads to a different kind of force change in acceleration over time compared to if you do engage those structures. And and is there a, is there a sort of maximum or optimum speed that I, I suppose that's two different questions isn't it is is there an optimum speed in which you will get these crumple zones activating and then is there a maximum speed through which you find um that there there's just too much energy in the collision for them to 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 reduce it if you see what i mean yeah sure so probably the the best way to answer this is to to say that those chassis members those longitudinals are tuned to work optimally for the tests under which those vehicles are being assessed so that's primarily regulatory tests so the european commission performs type approval testing so if you wish to sell a vehicle in europe you have to demonstrate to the european commission that your vehicle offers a minimum level of safety for the occupants but then also on top of that there's also what we call consumer testing so this is euro ncap uh, european new car assessment program so there's oftentimes a bit of confusion between those two because i think euro ncap is much more widely known this is where you, you go out and you buy a, a five-star car or a four-star car you have a kind of a star rating for for how well those vehicles perform so the Euro NCAP is a really important organization in the development of safety. So regulations kind of, the, if you view it, view it kind of like a pyramid, regulations at the bottom. So everything has to conform to the type approval regulations. But changing and developing regulations is quite a lengthy process. So it's, it's important to have kind of more agile testing on top of that. So things like Euro NCAP. So there's no obligation to do well at Euro NCAP. The incentivization is that five-star cars sell better than one-star cars. Um, so Euro NCAP actually provides a much stronger, a harsher uh, crash test than some of the regulation tests. So to answer your question, most vehicles will be tuned to perform very well in a frontal collision at about 40 miles per hour. So that's the, cra- that's the speed at which the Euro NCAP frontal crash test is conducted, and they do it with a 50% overlap into a barrier. And the reason for that configuration is actually based off of the RAIDS data that we've collected um, previously, kind of during the two, early 2000s. We, we were able to perform, um, to produce injury risk curves and really draw a line and say, right, at what speed are we getting 80% fatality rate? That's the target that we want. We, we know that vehicles need to be stronger. We know that their restraint systems need to be better. Where should we be testing these vehicles? And it's sure enough, it was 50% overlap, 40 miles per hour, 64 kph. So... Above that speed at 40 miles per hour, you're kind of breaching into the realms where you, you should expect a much higher level of fatality or fatality rate. So to answer the other side of your question in terms of is there a minimum speed in which you expect these, these things to activate um, or to be engaged properly, that, that can, that's quite a difficult question to answer. So I think the answer is probably not really. It's more important to make sure that those structures are struck in a way that they they can do their primary task. So, yeah, we've talked about the the kinds of configurations where you you might miss some of those structures or the structures are kind of pushed off to the side. If you're not having a a kind of dead head on, you're having an angled collision, those structures don't perform in the way that they were designed to. And we kind of end up in a situation where we're outside of the design parameters for those vehicles. 
are there other common crumple zones to look for? Because we, I, I think most people will be aware that the front of a car um, and probably the rear of a car is designed to reduce some of the energy. But are there other crumple areas to be aware of that uh, that if we see damage, it may not be as concerning as we as we might think? Sure. So, so the frontal is the frontal areas are definitely. You know, the, the largest area with which we as engineers have to work with. So, you know, it's, you have got to have things like the gearbox and the engine and all the ancillaries up there. So it's got a nice space to work with. When we get to things like side impacts, it's a very different kind of problem because we, we really don't have the same kind of area in which to to slow that vehicle down. Um, so the, the, the decelerations are often quite a lot higher. Also, in terms of the structural integrity of the vehicle, they tend to be a lot softer and weaker in the side. So when we come back to our first thing that we're looking for, intrusion, side impacts can often be a lot a lot more severe. So if you look at the change in vehicle design over time, actually, it kind of reflects that. So I used to have an old 1990s BMW, and the doors were like paper. They're so thin. Um, and I now have a, a 2006 BMW, and even in that time, the thickness of the doors and the amount of space between the kind of the outer skin of the door and where I'm actually sitting has increased massively. And then if you look at an even newer car, you know, kind of your 2020 um, 5 Series or something like that, there's actually quite a lot more space compared with the older older versions of that car. So kind of increasing the size of, of a vehicle is, is one way in which you can start to play with some of those survival spaces, which is partly due to why we've seen such an increase in the size of vehicles in, in recent years. So once we've kind of looked at, is there any intrusion in the vehicle? How have those crumple zones, have those key energy absorbing structures been uh, deformed? Have they actually absorbed any energy? Have they maximally absorbed the energy? And then we've led to intrusion as a result of that. It gives us an idea of what kind of forces that vehicle has been has experienced. But of course, that's not actually what we're interested in. If a vehicle is subject to really high forces, we don't really care. We care about the people inside of it. So this is where restraint systems now come in. So Newton's first law of motion says that a, a body will, or a mass will remain at constant velocity in it until an external force acts upon it. So again, thinking back kind of 50, 60 years ago, what we were finding I say we, I wasn't alive then, but what we, what they were finding, the people at TRL and, and other research institutes, were that it wasn't actually necessarily the crushing of the vehicle or the vehicle decelerating very quickly that was the issue. It was then the occupants traveling forwards into that, into that space at the same speed as which they went into the collision and then impacting the inside of the vehicle if they weren't restrained. So this is the kind of principles of, of uh, secondary safety is one build the vehicle so that it doesn't uh, intrude into that survival space Two, put structures around the vehicle that allow you to control the, the kind of the force experience of the vehicle. And then three, strap the people to the vehicle so that they can experience the same kind of forces and the uh, change in velocity over time that the vehicle is experiencing, which of course is your seatbelt. Obviously, when we're looking at the scene, it's really important to see how the restraint systems have behaved as well. So top of that list is, are they wearing a seatbelt? Because if they're not, then we, we come back all that, we go all the way back to that problem we had 50, 60 years ago. We have unrestrained occupants hitting um, the insides of the vehicles at pretty much the same speeds as which the vehicles were went into the collision. 
So sometimes, to, to give you an idea of the kind of timeframes over which this happens, it is possible that a vehicle has completed its collision. So let's say it's gone into a, into a barrier or whatever it is at 30, 40 miles per hour, has deformed, had all of its deceleration, changed its velocity down to zero, has come completely to rest before the occupants have actually impacted the inside of that vehicle. So the occupants are still traveling wow. at 40 miles per hour as they hit the inside of that vehicle. So that's the kind of timeframes we're talking about. When I'm talking about increasing the time over which these collisions are taking place, it's kind of, you know, increasing it from 50 milliseconds to 150 milliseconds, which is the difference between kind of fatal forces and serious injury or slight injury forces, but survivable. So, yeah, so that's how we kind of we control the injury experience of the occupants in a collision is to design the vehicle to behave in a certain way in the, in the collision and then strap those people to that vehicle. But it's also useful to think about seatbelts and what it is that they're actually doing. So seatbelts also exploit this idea of strong, stiff structures, but in the human body. So your three-point seatbelt is designed to load. So it's basically imparting the forces that the vehicle is experiencing, impacting a tree or another vehicle. And it's imparting those forces into the human body through the strongest points that we have available. So the, your lap belt should go across and engage your superior iliac crests, which are, of course, extremely strong, nice and close to the surface, no internal organs in between the seatbelt um, and the pelvis. And, of course, the, the diagonal loads the sternum. So that's a really important thing to look for. It's something that we try and look for as well, particularly if the casualties are still in situ, is to look at where the seatbelt is, because oftentimes people don't put their seatbelt on correctly, oftentimes have quite baggy clothing. Things like that can have a real influence. So with the one of the worst things you want from a seatbelt is that the lap belt kind of slides up and over those, those iliac crests and starts engaging the abdomen. So that's a really bad situation, a problem that you have with lap belts in, in centers of um, the rear row, for example, where you get lots of force mitigate or force uh, transfer then into the internal organs, which I'm sure if you've um, ever been to a, a really serious collision, you often end up with, or sometimes you end up with um, quite nasty abdominal injuries as well. So that's one thing to, to kind of look for is it's not only looking to see if the seatbelt was engaged and used, but also how has it um, loaded the occupant that it's trying to slow down. Is, is there any link between obesity and uh, risk of in, internal organ damage where, where the, the, they're not perhaps wearing the seatbelt um, due to having a larger abdomen in, in the correct way? Is there any link there or, or is that not Yes. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I, I'm not exactly certain on the link to abdominal or internal organ injuries. But what I can tell you with is that, again, thinking back to how these systems are designed, they're optimized to work. So obviously they're designed to help stop a human. And, and it's really important to, to emphasize that automotive manufacturers are really doing their absolute best to try and save as many lives as possible, um, not least because it's incredibly lucrative to do so. But also in the tests that we regulate them against, we simulate having the human with an anthropomorphic test device or a crash test dummy, which is, of course, supposed to be as lifelike and as biofidelic as possible, but obviously isn't. Um, and it's obviously got instrumentation inside of it so that we can measure things like how much the chest deflects and what kind of head accelerations are, are being exerted throughout the, the kind of the injury experience in a laboratory test. But a really key thing to realize is that the um, we have to use the same crash test dummies between all kinds of different tests. So it's important to have that repeatability and that reliability in those, in those tests. 
So they, the dummies, in terms of their sizes, haven't actually changed very much. So one of the main dummies is we use a 50th percentile male um, as kind of the most representative, uh, you know, an- anthropomorphics of uh, the, the population. Um, so it's supposed to be as representative of your typical road user as possible. But the data that was collected that determined that 50th percentile is now very, very old. In fact, some of it was was actually taken back in the 80s. And we've seen, of course, a huge increase in the in the size of people, of the, the average population, your 50th percentile male, both in terms of height and also mass. Yeah. So it's, it's important to understand then that there's certain aspects of the um, restraint system that really aren't designed to work for people who are above, well, not necessarily above, but they're optimized to work for people who are perhaps much lighter than your average male or female now. Um, so there's things like there's a, there's an, a component of a seatbelt um, called a load limiter. So what we are finding is that, okay, vehicles are much stronger now. We've got these nice crumple zones. That's great. But even then, and you know, you've got restraint systems, your seatbelt, your airbag, but even then we're still seeing quite severe injuries uh, to the thorax, particularly through loading the sternum. And what became apparent was that it's actually the seatbelt that's causing the injuries, particularly in kind of higher severity collisions, that it's the seatbelt transmitting that force that the vehicle's experienced through the sternum that's causing these injuries. So that came about, uh, brought about the, the um, advent of things called load limiters. So what that does is, is it's usually a, an, a kind of steel bar that's specifically manufactured to break at a certain force. And what it allows is the chest then to, to come forward. So the, the seatbelt will actually pay out halfway through a collision or at a specific force, which is usually four or six kilonewtons. So kilonewtons, um, you know, put very, very roughly into kilograms is about 400 kilos of force being, being put through the chest, being put through the sternum. And the reason why it's four kilonewtons is because that's what's optimal for the testing that they do, which is using this 50th percentile dummy. So now you take that into the real world, most modern cars will have, in fact, pretty much all modern cars will have load limiters. But of course, your average occupant in there is actually much heavier. So what that means is you reach that four kilonewtons earlier in the collision. So bearing in mind that the seatbelt coordinates with things like the airbags to deploy at certain times, what's happening is that you end up having that person pay out the seatbelt and come forwards earlier in the collision than was originally designed. Um, so there's there's quite a lot of work going on in Europe at the moment looking at how we can create adaptive vehicle restraints that don't just have these kind of fixed thresholds and how they operate, but can do things like weigh the, weigh the occupant that is in the seat and adapt how the restraint systems behave based on that person's height or weight. Going back to kind of things to look for in, in the vehicle and, and trying to get an understanding of of what the injury experience has been like for for the participants in a collision. The restraint system doesn't just comprise of the seatbelts. It's also about understanding how the airbags have behaved as well. So generally speaking, the airbags work in, in synchronization or in partnership with the seatbelt. Again, same, same physics principles is about slowing that occupant down over the longest period of time. So rather than just having the vehicle stop dead, putting all that force through the occupant, actually having the seatbelt allow the occupant to come forward. Again, it's just slowing or increasing the time over which that, that final change in velocity takes place. But of course, we want to limit contact with things like the steering wheel, um, things like uh, head contact to the A-pillars, head contact to any side uh, windows or anything like that. So that's where the airbags provide that final rundown 
that final kind of um, you know, cushioning effect of changing that velocity again over an increasing period of time. So if you engage an airbag for whatever it is, 50 milliseconds, that's better than then hitting the steering wheel and having that same change of velocity over one millisecond. So looking at how the airbags have deployed, looking to see um, have they deployed as a start, but also, yes, have, has, the, has the person engaged the airbags, which can be quite a, quite a difficult thing. I mean, uh, well, what, one tip is girls with makeup, it's really easy sometimes to see whether or not they've hit the airbag. <laughs> you, it's, it's true, you do leave a big you know, imprint yeah. of, of smudge marks and makeup. And I guess that comes to the, the fourth thing. So I've talked a lot about all the different things we look at, but the fourth thing that we'll look at to try and get an idea of what the injury experience is, is then look for specific contact evidence. So this can be things like you know, a, a big internal bullseye on the windscreen with hair in it. That's a big, big alarm bell there. Anything like smudge marks on the A-pillars, you know, any significant denting in the steering wheel, those kinds of things, anything that, that alludes to the kinematics of what that person has, has been through in the context of all the other things that we've experienced, uh, all the other things that we've uh, determined in looking at that vehicle. So that that's probably quite a lot of information, but I think that gives a, a, a kind of a four-step thing of what we look for um, in a collision. And as you get more experience with it, you know, our, our senior, most experienced investigators can look at a vehicle within a few seconds and kind of think, right, that's that looks like you've had really good engagement of that that vehicle, of uh, the crash structures at the front. There's no intrusion. I can see that the seatbelt was being worn. I can see all the airbags. I, you know, I'm, I'm happy with how that that vehicle's performed as it was designed to, and you can then also start to see right. This is a a, you know, a, a small overlap collision, for example, where we haven't engaged that uh, one of those two chassis members at the front. So we've had a, a much more severe um, acceleration profile. We've got probably associated intrusion with that. All, all those kind of things build a picture of what that injury experience was like. That's uh, that, that's really really interesting to to hear, Adam, and and nice to hear that, uh, or nice to hear it put into the the scientific uh, the scientific sort of thought process that that you've just applied to it. There, you you mentioned about bullseyes. So typically, I, I was always taught, and I'm sure a number of our listeners will be taught that um, bullseyes typically mean one of two things. They can be by a pedestrian that's been hit. And and I think I'll come on to ask you a couple of questions in a second about um, pedestrians being hit by cars and safety features and, and sort of prognosticators that we might be able to um, manage there or, or examine there. But um, the other one is that it might be an unrestrained driver or unrestrained passenger. So if we've got a bullseye, does that mean that the driver or the passengers were unrestrained? Is it possible to, to create a bullseye injury without whilst you are wearing a seatbelt? Yeah, absolutely. So, so again, I'm not sure there's a specific, there's not a hard and fast rule for this. So to, to put it in the kind of pure engineering terms, you shouldn't have a head bullseyeing a windscreen if everything has worked. So that means, you know, the seatbelt, the airbags, the whole, everything that we've talked about before. However, People also don't sit in the same way that vehicles are designed for. So you often see this um, with shorter people, that they will sit much closer to the steering wheel. Again, it's worth understanding that the vehicle is never really designed for the seatbelt and the airbags to work with a seat that, that is sat that close to a steering wheel. That's a really important thing to kind of get, get an understanding of. So the whole kinematics of what that person will experience were not designed for in any of the vehicle development, any of the technology development, any of the uh, regulatory tests, anything like that. 
So it is possible to be fully restrained and you know, contact your head um, on the windscreen. However, it's it's fairly unlikely if you're wearing a you know if there's not something drastically wrong and you're wearing a uh, your seatbelt and you're not really really close to the windscreen, you shouldn't be contacting the windscreen unless the windscreen's you know intruding in or something like that. But you can get other kinds of bullseyes. So one thing that you you might look out for is during an impact, the hands slipping off of the steering wheel and essentially ultimate punching the the windscreen. So sometimes you can end up with two kind of smaller, or sometimes they're quite big, but smaller bullseyes, which actually are the hands rather than the head coming forwards. And if you're lucky, you'll get all three. You get the head and both hands. So yes, it is possible, but generally internal bullseyeing of a windscreen, it, it shouldn't be happening. So it's a sign that something, you know, something hasn't acted in, in the way it should have. Um, yes. and, and are all bullseyes the same? Is a bullseye that's in the center of the windscreen the same as, as a bullseye that's in the top driver's side corner, for example? Absolutely not. So again, this is quite kind of emerging, emerging findings at the moment. But one thing to consider is that the, the windscreen is absolutely not uniform in its material properties, certainly in terms of stiffness or how easy it is to, to kind of leave a bullseye and things like that. What's also worth noting is that is also not uniform from manufacturer to manufacturer, and it's also not uniform from model to model. So it's a real minefield at the moment. In general terms, the center of the windscreen is generally weaker and softer than the, exter- than the exterior kind of edges of it. And the reason for that is, one, the windscreen is bonded in modern cars to, to the chassis. So in, in a lot of vehicles, it's actually load-bearing. And so it forms part of the, stiff, uh, the structural stiffness of the front of the vehicle. And in that bonding process, you increase the stiffness of the edges of the glass the closer you get to the steel frame or the, the chassis of the vehicle. So a general rule is a bullseye to the center of the screen, and this works for internal bullseyes and external bullseyes. The center of the screen is softer than the external part of the screen. But also it's worth noting that just because you see a bullseye doesn't necessarily mean you've had the same kind of injury mechanism. So there's a really interesting piece of work that looked at, um, they took high-speed um, video footage of the windscreen as they fired headforms into the windscreen. And they saw two completely different results from two nearly identical tests, one with huge accelerations recorded in the uh, headform and one with much lower accelerations. But when you looked at the two windscreens, it had very, very similar bullseye patterns. And when you look at the high-speed footage, what they see is that on the one where there is low, low accelerations and therefore low risk of injury, as the head form contacted the windscreen, the windscreen broke almost immediately and started to deform. So again, thinking back to that change in velocity over time, the, the head form is slowing down over, over a relatively long period of time. In contrast with the other one, which recorded much higher risk of injury, the head form hit the windscreen and the windscreen didn't break. So the, the head form is in the process of slowing down. And it's getting up over a much shorter period of time, getting that big acceleration spike, those big forces. But then the windscreen broke right at the end, but all the damage was already done. So you can look at two windscreens and see 
fairly comparable damage and see a completely different risk of injury in those in those tests. So it's a bit of a minefield at the moment. Yeah, very interesting. It'd be interesting to see uh, see how things how all of that develops and and what changes may come about as uh, as a result of that. It'd be great to um, maybe touch on some of the external safety features that there are uh, for p- particularly for for pedestrians. Um, and and whether or not there's anything like like you've been saying with the four features that we could look for to see how well they've engaged to help prog- prognosticate whether or not there's anything uh, any features external to the cars that are a designed to um, to prevent injury in uh, in being hit by pedestrians, but also if there's any particular damaged areas that are associated with high injury or, or occult injury. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I guess with, with pedestrians, one of the first things that, that I will certainly look at is the age of the vehicle that's, that's struck the pedestrian. So there's been a, a massive improvement in uh, vulnerable road user safety in, in terms of how vehicles are designed externally in, in recent years. So to put it into context, about 2009, there was a big change in, in how we regulated and tested vehicles for pedestrian safety. It was the introduction of what was called the pedestrian safety regulation. And that was all based on work that that RAIDS had done, looking at the injury mechanisms of what's happening. And one of the key things is to look at where the contact points are. One of the the really interesting injury mechanisms was looking at head strikes to the bonnet area. So again, this this kind of follows the same principles that we've been talking about with, with car occupants. And then it's about having that change in velocity, this time not of the car, but of the, of the pedestrian themselves so, and, and their musculoskeletal system and importantly also the organs inside that and having that change in velocity over the longest period of time. So what we were seeing is that with head strikes to the bonnet, the initial contacts, it's very good. Bonnets are actually quite soft. You know, you, if you push hard on a bonnet, you can bend it. So when you have the pedestrians kind of whipping around and impacting a bonnet, the initial part of that contact is very good you're getting that relatively speaking that is (laughs) um, you're getting that change in velocity over quite a nice period of time until the bonnet bottoms out and impacts the top of the engine which is of course extremely stiff and then you get all of the force transfer through the bonnet and into the person's head so one of the outcomes of the pedestrian safety regulation and the resulting change in vehicle design was looking at testing that bonnet area for head form safety. So they literally get a, an instrumented head form and fire it into the bonnet at different locations. And one of the key things is to look at the accelerations and the forces applied into that into the head. So we see now a big change in how uh, the fronts of vehicles are designed. So a big increase in the space between the bonnet and the, the surface of the, um, or the top of the engine, but also a real change in how bonnets are designed. So changing from kind of just a, a piece of sheet steel if you look underneath the bonnet of a modern Mercedes or you know, Mercedes C-Class, actually, that's quite a nice one. It's got a kind of lattice work of, of circular, you know, it's kind of yeah, a matrix almost of, of metal. And that's all about distributing those forces and so not allowing the, the head to apply a kind of a point force and push the bonnet down in that point, but allowing the whole bonnet to absorb some of that energy and reduce the amount of deformation that goes into it. So looking at how the bonnet has deformed and looking if there's any stiff parts of the engine bay that have been loaded is, is a good is a good tip 
And again, the same thing kind of applies to looking at where and recognizing where the stiff parts of the vehicle are. So in general, if you're a pedestrian, we want to avoid the stiff parts of a vehicle as much as possible. Basically, as a general rule, towards the edges of things is where things tend to get stiff. So when we get to the rear edge of the bonnet and we get to the windscreen scuttle, that's quite a stiff area. You also have complications with things like the windscreen motors and things like that, where essentially you have a spindle attached to the, the windscreen wiper poking out. So if you had head contact onto that, that's really bad. Most manufacturers are quite good at hiding those things underneath the bonnets now. Um, and then obviously as we get up, we've talked about the windscreens, anything towards the edges on the A-pillars or the scuttle rail, those are really stiff parts of a vehicle and you end up with really high um, high forces being you know, put on put onto the pedestrian. In terms of active technologies, what we're seeing is another way of kind of improving how that head form engages into things like the bonnet. You're seeing active systems now. So lots of vehicles now will have active pedestrian bonnets. So there's a little sensor in the bonnet that detects or or, sorry in the bumper that detects when it thinks it's hit a pedestrian and it will deploy either airbags or sometimes spring-loaded kind of uh, at at the hinges so that the whole bonnet raises up about five to ten centimeters again just increasing that survival space between the bonnet and the stiff structures underneath it oh Um, that's so that's really interesting because I've, i've noticed that at a couple of at a couple of RTCs that I've been to on newer cars, and I thought it was just the bonnet release catchers just sort of failing and, and the, the bonnet was just coming up a little bit. But that, that's actually a safety mechanism, is it? That is, yeah. So that's an active pedestrian safety bonnet. Yeah, different manufacturers have different ways of doing it. So Mercedes have a, have a, a really impressive hinge. I think Jaguar has just an airbag system that's very simple, just pops it up. So yeah, it's, it's all about increasing that space between the bonnet and the the, the engine bay so looking at has where has the head contacted has the head contacted you know nice and centrally in that bonnet in which case great we're expecting that system to have a really good effect oftentimes it doesn't work like that though <laughs> and oftentimes we get head contacts in different places obviously as well on scene if you see anything with an external airbag that's you know it's pretty pretty big indicator because it tends to you know, cover up most of the bottom of the windscreen um, and kind of up the a pillars that's obviously a, an active system I, exactly the same principle increase the time over which that change in velocity happens fantastic and i was uh i was I hope you don't think i was stalking you prior to this but i was looking at uh some bits of research that, that you've been involved with publishing and one of them was looking at pedestrian accidents and leg contact points across yeah. the front of the vehicles and i i couldn't access the the whole piece but i um i i sort of seem to gather the impression from the abstract that the is it fair to say the lateral aspects of the bumper uh, again kind of as you were saying are associated with higher injury is is that correct or yeah that yeah absolutely yeah. very happy to send you the paper by the way um so you... oh, please that'd be that'd be grand if we uh, can link it in the article that'd be yeah, fantastic absolutely yeah, so that was a that was an interesting piece of work. So that was actually something that kind of stemmed off of the work from the pedestrian safety regulation. So there's a there's a bit of kind of yeah, a bit of background to this, which hopefully gives a bit of insight into I wouldn't necessarily call it a battle, but the you know the the toing and froing that happens between regulators, research institutes, and the automotive manufacturers. So the original test, which is basically to fire a leg form. So it's, it's, it's again, very similar to the head form. It's just a, an instrumented anthropomorphic test device, which you, you fire into the front of the vehicle. It tests you know, things like um, 
your deflection of the knee joint and things like that, or so you can get risk of injury. The way that the regulation was written was so that it was it should be tested within the center of the of the bumper, as defined by taking a forty uh, sorry a sixty degree angle, sliding it up to the up to the vehicle, and the first points of contact mark the edge of your bumper. So that works very well with something like a Mark III Volkswagen Golf or a really old BMW 5 Series, which have square fronts. But of course, vehicle design has changed a lot. And we've seen, you know, if you compare something like an old Vauxhall Vectra to a Vauxhall Insignia, if you look at the front design of the bumper, they're now much, much more curved. And so what we're seeing is that actually, if you take that same approach and you slide this thing up to mark the edges of, of this test zone, um, actually you encroach increasingly. Um, and then there's certain design features, which I won't name specific manufacturers, um, but there are certain design features. If you look on the, the bottom of the bumper trim, you'll see kind of like little fangs that stick out on, on the, you know, towards the center of the vehicle. Ford Focus is one. <laughs> and those are, I'm not saying that they did this deliberately, but they happen to be precisely where you, uh, at 60 degrees. So when you trying to define where's the edge of your bumper, you end up drawing this line that's actually your, your, you can only test then in less than half of the actual full width of the vehicle. So you can only fire your leg form into the very central 40% of that vehicle. So the external parts of that vehicle don't need to be regulated. So, so again, it's, it's not about, you know, getting dangerous cars through, but it's about doing the tests in a way that you know, has the greatest real-world benefit, but also means that you can pass the tests and sell lots of vehicles. So yeah, generally towards the edges of those those vehicles, we see, again, stiffer structures and some of the, the safety structures behind the bumper that are designed to, to help the leg impact. So you know, often there's big bits of foam and things like that to, behind the plastic bumper, again, to, to increase that time over, the, over which the Delta V takes place. They don't extend all the way out to the edges. So you get much kind of harsher engagements of the leg into those side structures. And also there's other kind of little side effects that can happen. So there's certain manufacturers. Again, if you go and look at certain cars, look at the headlight design. And cars at the moment have quite an aggressive styling, which means that their their, um, headlights are quite kind of angular and a bit frowny, which means that the front wing design often ends in a spike that comes over the top where it meets the bonnet, the top of the headlight, and then goes into the front wing. So we've had a few incidents where somebody has been impacted. The plastic headlight has been pushed back because that's all just mounted to plastic bracketing, goes back. And what you're left with is this big metal spike from the front wing and actually amputating parts of parts of the leg um, because of that. Wow. Of course, nobody ever expected or wanted, but it's a kind of a, a demonstration as to why we need to make sure you know, that we're, we're all doing the right things, that the vehicles that are made are correct. We're testing them in the right way and that we're developing all this technology to, to make, yeah, to make a, a better influence. Yeah. And, and it's really, it's really interesting talking with you about how, you know, there's a lot of really amazing safety features in these vehicles and there's a lot of big leaps that are being made in, in safety technology. But like you keep saying, it is all aimed at a very uniform test and real life uh, sh- sort of angular momentums and different sized people yeah. are, are meaning that they may slip through the cracks or, or may not fit these safety features. And, and so it's it's almost like you're being hit by a vehicle without a safety feature there. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's also worth saying, you know, that we, we can't solve 
or it's, we could actually that is a, an important thing to say that it, you know it, it's important to always consider people like the automotive manufacturers and the tier one suppliers because you could regulate and legislate for the perfect automotive vehicle that you solve all fatalities and never have any collisions it would bankrupt the automotive industry and that's one of the key driving factors to improving safety is that we need to build newer cars and we need those newer cars to be sold so we need the automotive industry to be successful in order to actually see a change in, in an improvement in in road safety so we can't change we can't save every single type of, of collision so it's it's really about understanding where do you kind of aim for where do you hedge your bet should we use a 50th percentile crash test dummy you know that's bang in the middle of your bell curve yes that covers off most people but then also understanding yeah, how should we work with the automotive manufacturers, with the regulators, with everybody else to develop it. So as that bell curve shifts and actually that 50th percentile male dummy becomes increasingly less representative, how do we develop the technologies together um, so that we can uh, yeah, improve the, the real world protection for, for the public? That's all fantastic. That's brilliant. Thanks uh, for that, Adam. A um, couple of questions then on what you have found from the RAIDS project. So... Are, is there anything that makes you that, that you see on scene? Uh, obviously, you've expanded on on some things quite well, but is there anything that you see on scene and think this patient probably has X injury, um, or, or anything that that you you can garner from um, from what you're seeing on scene that that really makes you think this area of, of the patient is is going to be is, is going to be injured so one of the reasons that uh, that i'm asking is it's quite notorious that pre-hospitally um or to be honest without any kind of imaging without x-ray and ct it can be quite difficult to pick up serious chest injuries in in patients and when we look at um pre-hospital assessment and the paperwork and the 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 paramedics and the pre-hospital team's suspicion of injury um quite often injuries to the thorax and the chest are are not put in and are later found to have a, a serious uh, chest pathology on 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 ct uh, later in in hospital so uh, is there anything that that particularly of, of damage to the car that that is associated with with chest injuries or, or any other areas injured yeah that's a great question um, yeah, it's really interesting to hear the kind of the challenges and some of the things that you guys experience as well, because we don't really get that um, you know, that kind of uh, contact. So yeah, this, it's really interesting to hear that. So it's quite again, it's quite a tricky question to answer because it, it really depends on on the specific circumstances. So you know, going back to to the things we've talked about, obviously, if there's things that have contacted the thorax other than the restraint systems so any intrusion any foreign body as well contacting the thorax or, or the head or anything like that then that's kind of quite an easy one to tick off that you know we expect quite a lot of um, you know, blunt force trauma being the, the primary injury mechanism and you know the associated things with that where things get a little bit more interesting is when we start to think about you know, really high deceleration forces so it's it's possible sometimes to get you know not very much intrusion but end up not engaging some of those crash structures particularly well and having really really high acceleration and therefore force spikes during the collision so an example might be if you impact a tree or a lamppost for example and you impact it just in the right place so you miss both of those two longitudinals you miss the engine something like that and you end up crushing um, the vehicle kind of you know like a a fork into butter basically so 
because you're not engaging any of those strong, stiff structures, the tree or whatever, um, the lamppost cuts through the you know, the soft parts of the, the vehicle quite quite easily. So you end up with quite a lot of deformation into that vehicle. During that period, the vehicle isn't really slowing down that much. I mean, of course, again, that's a relative term. You'd, you'd know about it while it was happening, definitely. But in terms of how, how we want a vehicle to, to slow down, if you're engaging those big stiff structures or longitudinals, that vehicle's slowing down pretty significantly throughout that whole period that that longitudinal is crushing. So when you miss those, the vehicle isn't really slowing down until you hit something really strong, be, be that something like the engine block or the bulkhead of the, the chassis, so basically the front of the occupant cell. At that point, you suddenly get all the deceleration occurring. So you may not end up with a huge amount of intrusion or you know things coming into the into the occupant cell, but then the forces that are being put through the through the seatbelt into the thorax can be really really high and far beyond what what the the seat was designed for. So when we're seeing things like that, when I'm looking at the front of a vehicle or or indeed the side of a vehicle, I'm trying to almost plot what what's the acceleration profile look like if we've engaged that longitudinal. Then I'm seeing a nice kind of steady deceleration exactly as it was designed when you see something like you're seeing low deceleration then it's hit the bulkhead as we've crushed back to here big acceleration spike and that can be where you end up you know if you then think about what the thorax is doing the thorax is pushed up against the the seat belt the seat belt has probably paid out as we've we've breached that four kilonewton threshold and and the, this seat belt is is paying forwards which is hopefully mitigating some of that force transmission into into the thorax but that's when you start to do things like bottoming out airbags and things like that when you have re- when you have the person coming really far forwards so the airbag will deploy you'll hit the airbag but it's it's just not enough and you end up with the person hitting things like the steering column that's when you get again that really big spike in, in acceleration you may not end up with actually that much kind of external damage to the person probably quite a big bruise but it's what's happening on the inside so again, all of this, all of this um, idea of you know, um, Newton's first law that the occupant still moves forwards at the same speed until an external force applies upon them. That's exactly what's happening to the internal organs inside the thorax as well. So whenever you're seeing anything like this, the airbag bottoming out, steering wheel engaged by the thorax, you're kind of immediately thinking, right, okay, aorta tear, lung contusions, that kind of thing. There's those kinds of situations where you can end up with really sharp spikes that end up being, you may not even, um, well, you, you probably would break some ribs, but you may not even end up with things like flail chest or anything like that, that you end up with an aorta tear or something like that, or some kind of lung contusion. Does that kind of answer your question? It's, well, it's yeah, yeah, one yeah. example. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I think certainly the thing that I'm taking away from this conversation is it's sort of thinking about the whole the the, the whole as you've said, forces process and deceleration process and, and thinking about how has this have the safety features been able to do their job or has that force transmission gone into that survivable cockpit area and gone yeah. through the patient? And what I think we would all really love is being able to go, oh, you know, if there is damage to this area of the of the vehicle then it's associated with injuries in this part of the patient and unfortunately it's not that black and white but but actually by by taking a few moments and and I'm starting to realize now how little I actually do look at the scene I take note of where areas are damaged but 
I think by just taking a few moments more to run through in my mind, where has the energy gone in this crash and where mm. have the points of impact been and, and have things done what they've been designed to do or have they not and has the energy ended up in my patient is actually a far more useful way of looking at the scene and, and, and a far more educated manner of looking at the scene than just thinking, okay, well, there's a bullseye here, so I'm going to start thinking about their brain. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's Adam Barrow there, the head of collision research for the Transport Research Laboratory. And I think some really useful information there, Josh. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a number of things that we can take away from that interview. And and, uh, I've just taken away a few more learning points listening to that for a second time. So Alex, is there anything from that interview that that you've garnered and that you're taking away from it, either that is going to change your practice or areas that has been reinforced in your own practice as a result of what what Adam and I discussed? Well, like I said at the start, Josh, I think there's definitely that period where you look at the vehicle and not being a trained crash investigator, not knowing the the four stages um, that, that they kind of go through and all of the physics uh, in in depth, it's it can be really difficult because you you just look at the vehicle and say, yeah, that's that's all kind of smashed up. And as you discussed, um, it's hard to know specifically from a collision at, at point A doesn't necessarily equate to an injury on the patient uh, at point B. So I think that's that's a really interesting way of looking at it, the way that Adam's in the four stages. And I think that's perhaps gives you a little bit more structure to being able to uh, to look at a vehicle and um, and decide uh, how effective the safety features have been. Little pointers for things to look for, especially the stuff about bullseyes on windows. And actually quite interesting, um, the idea of the hand coming off the window and hitting, hitting the windscreen. And actually when mm-hmm. I... Um, people who are listening might not know but i had a collision in a in an rv and uh, i actually broke a knuckle on my hand and i could not figure out how it happened and i think actually thinking back that could well be what it was that my hand came off the steering wheel and actually probably punched the window which is um which is pretty hardcore i think um yeah, ultimate punching <laughs> I, i'm going to use that loads in my paperwork if i ever see it um another thing i think that i was when i was listening to it i think really what struck me was they put all this effort into um, creating all these really clever ways of slowing down the collision and um, sort of reducing the the transfer of force. And then if you're not wearing a seatbelt, you kind of render that completely pointless. And the thing that struck me most about that was how often are we as ambulance practitioners or, or paramedics, how often are we traveling in the back of a vehicle without a seatbelt on? And actually, we're rendering all of those really impressive safety features and all that effort that Adam and and his team are sort of going through. And we're actually rendering that completely useless by not actually wearing the safety equipment. And if you add to the fact that in those larger vehicles, they've got less space to play with, with regards to crumple zones and things like that. Yeah. And especially if you think, I think one of the main things to take away was obviously the um, the speed of the collisions. I mean, we're literally talking milliseconds so it's not a case that you could decide oh hang on I'm uh, there's a crash coming I'm gonna I'm gonna hold on to this handle here um you know these things are literally happening in milliseconds and if you're not Mm -hmm. strapped into the back of your vehicle you're traveling across the cabin at let's say 40 miles an hour completely unrestrained and then Mm -hmm. you know I don't want to go on about too much because there might be people listening that have uh 
perhaps had collisions or know people that have but it's just it's just an interesting thing to think about on top of um not only you know does this apply to our patients but actually it's an interesting part of safety for ourselves as um as practitioners yeah absolutely and so the things that i'm going to take away from this uh, from this podcast i'm going to ensure that the next time i look at one of these vehicles i'm using that structured approach that, that adam and his team have been using i'm going to be asking myself those four questions one i'm going to be looking at the survival space asking has the survival space remained intact or has there been intrusion into the cockpit has the car been allowed time for all of those other safety features to do their job or has there just been a massive amount of energy uh, and there's been an intrusion into that survival space i'm going to ask has there been good engagement of the longitudinals uh, has it been a dead center collision and so it might have just completely missed them or has it been a collision that hasn't allowed them to engage appropriately to take away some of that energy from the patient's injury experience has the patient been wearing a seatbelt? so this is a question that i'm sure we ask ourselves all the time and that we document quite thoroughly but has that seatbelt done its job has it broken is the retraction mechanism still in play uh we know that these these things are optimized for that 50th percentile group so if this is a patient that sits outside of that maybe they're too small maybe they're they're quite small stature and they're sitting too close to the steering wheel and so the safety mechanisms won't be working potentially at their their peak performance or are they have they got a particularly high bmi and might they be a bit too heavy for that safety feature to be optimized are they a bit too heavy for for, for the seatbelt retraction mechanism and might it have broken because of the size of their belly or their chest has the seatbelt been sitting over those bony landmarks like it's designed to or potentially could there have been uh an abnormal transference of energy into the soft uh, abdominal cavity and finally i'm going to ask have the airbags gone off and have they engaged in the way that they're designed to yeah those are those are all really useful things that adam sort of pointed out and discussed and i think it's uh really useful information to be able to get from the scene in conjunction with the assessment and the findings that you make on the patient obviously no no degree of collision investigation is going to replace uh, thorough patient examination but it's all information that feeds into the greater picture especially if you're looking at a very complicated scene perhaps something involving multiple vehicles or multiple patients um, the more information you can get sometimes the uh, the better really and another little takeaway point for me is with regards to pedestrians versus vehicles and thinking about the part of the vehicle that the pedestrian is engaged with. So remembering what Adam said, the further away from the centre line that you get, the, the vehicle is generally harder. So thinking about the lateral aspects of the windscreen, of the bonnet, of the bumper, uh, those are all going to be harder towards the outer side of the vehicle and they're, they're not perhaps optimised for collision with the pedestrian. So if we've got damage there, uh, we may have people that are uh, are significantly more more injured, uh, and also thinking about those aspects of the vehicles that that aren't going to crumple or, or move at all. Thinking about the scuttle rails on top, thinking about the windscreen wipers, and looking to see if there's any signs of contact there. Yeah, those are really good points, Josh. And I think on that note, I think we'll leave it there for the first half of this sort of two-part podcast. Adam had uh, a lot of really useful information for us. So as we said at the beginning, we've decided to break this podcast into two parts. They should be released around about the same time. So do have a look at our website at uh, generalbroadcast.org.uk. And if you've got any questions about the stuff that we've discussed today or any feedback for us, you can always drop us an email at generalbroadcastpodcast at outlook.com. 
and stay tuned for the second part of the podcast which is some listeners questions which we have uh, managed to uh, put to adam and uh, get his responses from the uh, point of view of a subject expert thanks very much for listening thank you see you next time